trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there, and welcome to the show. I would like to formally welcome you to our little clique of wrong thinkers. Now, here's the crazy thing. There aren't that many of us, but you really don't need that many people thinking clearly and independently to make a difference. And yes, the power of example is something that really rubs off on the people around you. You don't even have to be trying. You just... You just have to set the right example. Funny how that works. By the way, our show is brought to you by great sponsors like Monticello College, LifesavingFood.com. If I could just say for a moment, uh, you know, as I look around at some of the uncertainty, some of the events going on around us, the importance of food storage, the importance of having some stores set aside for a rainy day, they've never been more clear to me than they are right now. And uh, they have packages that you can customize. You know, I mean, everything from a few days to a month to a year. It's whatever fits your budget. Again, I've got a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, as well as links to pure-light.com, hslammo.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I appreciate each of these sponsors making the show possible. And I hope that you'll either do business with them if you need what they are offering, or... Just want to reach out to him and tell him, hey, thanks for uh, thanks for helping Brian with uh, making a living, doing his show. All right. So if you find yourself wrestling with the question of whether or not to send your kids back to public school this fall, I guess the first thing you need to know is you are definitely not alone. In fact, uh, Carrie McDonald has a wonderful article published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, titled, You Don't Have to Send Your Kid Back to Public School This Fall. Here are your options. Now, why would people be questioning this kind of thing right now? Well, you know, I mean, look, COVID made things different in the sense that, first of all, they shut down schools for most of last year, right? The kids were doing the Zoom classroom, or maybe they had some, you know, in-person schooling, but we make sure everybody's You know, uh, everybody is masked up and they have to follow these distancing protocols and so forth. It was tough. And I say this, you know, from the standpoint of I'm a parent of two kids who were attending public school as well as uh, my wife is a public school teacher. And the next big threshold that appears to be, you know, popping up as as a possible sticking point for people is uh, the idea that uh, like, like what California is doing. Sure, your kids can come to school. No, we won't make them wear masks, but they have to be fully vaccinated. Now, for some people, that's not going to be a big deal. And that's that's fine. I think that's really their call to make. But a little helpful incentive there, you know, a little uh, a little light prod from a velvet covered bayonet. And, you know, we're supposed to pretend like, oh, well, I'm being given a choice. Unfortunately, that choice looks a lot like, hey, uh, do this. Or else. (laughs) It just, it doesn't feel like much of a choice. Carrie McDonald says public schools have made life really difficult over the last year and a half, but it doesn't have to be that way. She says this year's back to school season is as uncertain and as unsettling as last. 
With schools in some parts of the country set to open early next month, the CDC just announced its virus control recommendations, which include required masking for unvaccinated students and staff, continued social distancing, and frequent virus testing. Now, these guidelines were put forth even as new research confirms the minimal risk to children of COVID-19 and explains why places such as the U.K. are not recommending vaccinating most children under 18 against the disease. Currently, COVID-19 vaccination is only available for individuals 12 and over in the U.S., and many parents are choosing not to have their children vaccinated against this virus, which Carrie says will leave a lot of students wearing masks all day at school and create headaches for school personnel to track who is and who is not allowed to be mask-free. If sorting vaccinated and unvaccinated students proves too burdensome, administrators might just choose to keep a masking policy in place for everyone, the Associated Press reported on Friday. Some school districts, such as Detroit and Philadelphia, have already said masks will be required of all students this academic year, regardless of vaccination status. In other areas, parents are suing school districts over mask-wearing policies. But meanwhile, this country's largest teachers' union is proposing mandatory vaccinations for students. Oh, boy. We're going to be spending a little bit of time today talking about mandatory vaccinations. But back to Carrie's article. Carrie McDonald says these school coronavirus policies, along with ongoing battles over K-12 curriculum, are leading more parents than ever to consider new learning models for their children. And she says, fortunately, they have options. In fact, she has a link here to her new free ebook, The 2021 Curious Parents Guide to Education Options. I would strongly recommend that because Carrie is, she has a very well informed and I think very even handed take on this. She is not an ideologue, but she is definitely someone who knows what she's talking about when it comes to school choice and educational choice for families. In her book, this ebook, the 2021 Curious Parents Guide to Education Options, she discusses the education choices available to families. Now, the past year has been eye-opening for many parents. Starting in the spring of 2020, they saw over Zoom exactly what their kids were or were not learning. And they felt empowered to investigate other other education possibilities. Frustrated by school reopening delays, teachers' union antics, and various virus control measures, many parents decided to take back control of their children's education from government bureaucrats. Homeschooling numbers soared, public school enrollment plummeted as parents traded education assignments for choices. She says parents recognized, perhaps for the first time, that they have so many options available to them in every other area of their lives and of their parenting. Yet when it comes to educating their kids, they're left with a one-size-fits-all government school assignment. That's no longer tolerable to families who desire much more choice and customization in their children's learning. So early signs indicate that many parents will again opt out of their local school district this year and pursue other educational options. Tiffany Pierce, a parent and educator in Queens in New York City, said there are many parents I know that made the decision to homeschool within the last year. During the remote and hybrid school year, parents have noticed how their vision of education did not align with that of the Department of Education, school, or in some cases, the teacher's vision. Parents were able to see from video learning how their child interacted with content, teachers, and peers. 
Now, Pierce should know she has a master's degree in teaching. She's run a daily homeschool micro-learning program for the past couple of years. And she says she saw growing interest from people who weren't satisfied with Zoom school and wanted a more individualized, in-person learning experience for their children. So Pierce adapted her home-based homeschool program to be fully outside in local parks, often with tents, during the entire 2020-2021 academic year. Now, she plans to continue with at least a partial outside classroom going forward due to its positive reception. Pierce said, I believe this year and a half has shown us all that there needs to be more than just reform to education. There needs to be a conscious elevation and rethink of what is learning. Why do we need it? What are the infinite ways that learning can look like? Learning pods and micro schools like Pierce's are here to stay. And Carrie McDonald says disruptive innovation in homeschooling is just the beginning or is just beginning rather. She says, now that many parents have more freedom and flexibility in their own work, they may be able to grant that same freedom and flexibility to their children. More companies are offering remote work options. More employees are seeking jobs, enabling them to work from home. Patrick Mullane of Harvard Business School said, now as we're preparing to get back to business as usual, it seems professionals don't want business as usual. Instead, they want flexibility from their employers to allow them to maintain the new work-home balance and productivity they've come to enjoy. And it's this newfound work-home flexibility that opens up a multitude of education options for families. Pierce says families are looking for ways their child can learn that make sense for both the child and family. Now, Pierce is planning to expand and hopefully scale her micro-learning model. She believes that the dominant institutional system of education is incompatible with what many families want, particularly in the wake of a pandemic year that has unbundled work and school from buildings and desks. So Carrie McDonald says, look, work and education have changed profoundly over the last year, creating new preferences and possibilities for both individual choice and flexibility are replacing forced assignments and rigidity. And she has some links that you can follow if you'd like to learn more about K-12 education choices beyond your local school assignment. I would recommend visit the article so you can download her free ebook, The 2021 Curious Parents Guide to Education Options. As always, there will be a link in the show notes for July 14th, at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check it out. Dig a little bit deeper. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, going to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, not just critical race theory. I know that that's kind of all the the rage right now, pun intended. There is a lot of rage attached to it. But in my opinion, critical race theory is more of a politicized guilt trip disguising itself as historical perspective. And I think one of the telling things, this this probably tips my hand to how I feel about uh, the the biggest teachers unions in the country, but it's, it's a major tenet of what they want to be teaching. And if you have followed what these teachers unions have put, you know, front and center on their agenda over the last few years, it's pretty clear 
that uh, there there is more of an agenda of indoctrination than actually educating and helping kids uh, learn what they need to be productive, clear, independent thinking citizens. Now, when it comes to critical race theory, you've got a lot of people up in arms. A lot of people clamoring for, you know, more government. Hey, we need the legislature to step in here and ban this and make sure that nobody is teaching these uh, unpopular or these these radical ideas. Okay, that's that's some parents. But it helps to take a step back occasionally and realize that, uh, you know, critical race theory is just one part of a larger agenda that is trying to subvert the core values that make personal freedom possible. Robert Weisberg, in a piece published on uh, intellectualtakeout.org, breaks this down beautifully. He says, few notice what is taught in school until it's too late. Today's push for critical race theory is extraordinarily ambitious, and it's hard for defenders of traditional education to imagine anything more toxic than this theory that has seemingly burst on the scene. But he says, as bad as it may seem, CRT is not the final voice of pernicious racial ideology. He says it can get worse, and it's delusional to believe that just because a given idea is incredibly stupid and destructive, it's therefore impossible for something worse to come along. If that were true, he says today's PC madness would have died out decades ago. So what can outshine critical race theory in destroying our schools with crackpot history and undeserved guilt trips? The answer is assaulting the core values that made America a first world democracy. Now, he says the agenda is still in the preliminary stages, but like critical race theory, it is race centered and obsesses upon evil whites. But he says here the focus is on whiteness, apart from anything specific inflicted on blacks by malevolent whites. In other words, whites just infect blacks as if whiteness were a communicable disease. Whiteness, he says, inherently oppresses blacks, is the message in a recent recent statement from the National Museum of African American History. Now, the toxicity being transmitted includes, among other things, the scientific method, rugged individualism, a strong work ethic, respect for authority, rational thinking, Christianity, English common law, justice, and property rights. To be blunt, everything that separates contemporary America from, say, nations like Haiti or Zimbabwe. In response to outrage, the museum removed this condemnation of whiteness from its website, but did not disavow it. So Robert Weisberg says, how might teachers undermine such values as clear, rational thinking or the merits of hard work? The bad news, he says, is it can be done. And the really bad news is that this can be accomplished in an under-the-radar manner. And this stealthiness makes it more dangerous than critical race theory. In fact, this anti-whiteness campaign is already in place, though it's seldom recognized as such. So consider, for example, subverting the work ethic. Promote students regardless of their accomplishments. Award meaningless grades just for showing up. And stigmatize the diligent for making lazy students feel bad about themselves. Destroying faith and rational thinking, he says, is equally easy. Don't explain how scientific reasoning created modern technology. Describe instead how scientific thinking is just one way of trying to understand the world and (laughs) how this one method is rooted exclusively in European culture. Oh, how white. 
Add in a detailed description of how non-Western cultures have their own equally valid approaches to discovering truth. Then belittle mathematics as unimportant for understanding the world. He says it's easy to imagine how children might graduate never having heard of Galileo or Newton, yet having an an appreciation of African sorcery. And what makes this nonsense so difficult to defeat is that proponents cloak it in faddish multicultural relativism. After all, when it comes to individualism versus collectivism, Hillary Clinton herself tells us it takes a whole village to raise a child. Yes, many students may appreciate car culture, but for those who hate capitalism, honesty in recounting the history of the automobile requires telling fourth graders that Henry Ford was an anti-Semite and John D. Rockefeller a rapacious money grubber. And of course, that the pollution-emitting car is destroying the planet. Imposing the transformation would not be especially difficult, says Robert Weisberg. Rita Kramer's 1991 Ed School Follies details the training of future teachers. And even back in 1991, the assault on American values was pervasive. Now, decades later, parents are surprised that Junior learns that one's sexual identity just reflects personal choice. Meanwhile, who keeps track of thousands of local school board elections where a few well-organized radicals can elect officials to advance a radical ideological agenda? I like this analogy. He says the left's political ideology spreads like carbon monoxide, odorless and invisible. Now, finally, this willingness to accept nonsense exploits America's desperation to achieve racial equality via schooling. Unfortunately, though, he says this quest is a parade of failures spanning everything from court-ordered racial integration to hiring teachers who look like their diverse students to spending billions on technological gimmicks. This is an industry where every crackpot idea deserves a hearing, no matter how dangerous. If millions can be convinced defunding the police will reduce crime, well, they may also come to believe that eliminating the values incorporated in so-called whiteness will cure crime-ridden schools. Robert Weisberg says, Never dismiss ideas as too stupid to win the battle of ideas. Was the American Revolution all about defending slavery, as the 1619 Project alleges? Are colorblind policies racist? He says, destroying what made America great is a way of life for some, so it's better to kill off their schemes before they're taken seriously. And then he says, consider yourself warned. You know, I I know this is going to sound radical, but I think some of the strongest medicine to counter this kind of nonsense is to simply remove your child from that public education setting. Now, I, I understand that's treading on some toes. In fact, some people felt their blood pressure spike even hearing me say that. And I'm, I'm sorry. My goal wasn't to get you upset. It's just to point out that the system is one in which there is a captive audience. And if you give activists, people who, who are, are adept at gaming systems, you better believe they're going to do everything they can to capture that system and use it in ways that... Uh, that fits their agenda, fits their goals, as opposed to, you know, what, whatever the stated goal is of public education. I always thought it was, hey, to teach the three R's, racism, racism, and racism. Okay, I'm, I'm kidding. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Anyway, 
you got some tough choices. I think we all have some tough choices. And of course, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing either. There are some school districts that, in fact, do not embrace this kind of silliness and, and likely never will. But it's disturbing to see how quickly this influence is spreading. And, you know, the divisiveness of these kinds of ideas, well, I think you can pretty much see that for yourself. Seriously, having a good work ethic, saying that that's that's a bad thing, that math, you know, absolute to either right or wrong answers is somehow a symptom of whiteness. I don't know. It seems like a stretch to me, but apparently there are some people who believe this sincerely. What do you think? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out to one of my sponsors here, and that is the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you are listening to me from within the state of Utah, this is the mortgage team you want to talk to if you are in the market for a home. A lot of people have uh, been making the move from you know other places to the Intermountain West, and that means that the demand for homes right now is crazy high. It is definitely a seller's market, and there's a lot of competition for every home that gets on the market inventory. I don't know if it's ever been lower. Talking to my friends who are realtors, they, they say this, this is unprecedented. So the bottom line is, when you find the home of your dreams, your financing has to be squared away now. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. They have the experience, they have the know-how to make things happen when time is of the essence. We're talking from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. They have the stability and the clout to help you get the home you need and the loan you need without delay. Now, Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Her phone number is 435-703-4522. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And if you're lucky enough to be in St. George, you can actually visit Patriot Home Mortgage at 619 South Bluff, Tower 1, and two in St. George. Sure appreciate them being sponsors of this program. So those who are beginning to comprehend the degree to which we have allowed tyranny to gain a foothold in American society, at some point find themselves wondering, how did it come to this? I know I've, I find, I've been paying attention, at least I feel like I've been paying pretty close attention for about the last 25 years, and I still find myself going, oh my word, how did we get to this point? came across an essay from Emmanuel Pastrich that uh, was a very thought-provoking explanation of the war on freedom, how tyranny overran the United States. And I learned a new term here, inverted totalitarianism. And this is actually a pretty solid explanation. Emmanuel Pastrich says, slowly against their will and against their natural inclination to watch football and eat pizza... Americans are awakening to the reality of a totalitarian system with its tentacles wrapped around every aspect of their existence. Now, sadly, the true nature of this tyranny still eludes the understanding of most citizens, in part because the process by which America was transformed utterly has been slow, in part because the commercial media points us away from the true causes of this slippage and pins all blame on easily identifiable bad guys. 
Now, those seeped in the progressive political tradition sensed a radical loss of justice and transparency under the George W. Bush administration. A trend that only accelerated under the Trump administration, with a perceived reprieve under Obama and the possibility of a positive turn under Biden. Those marinated in the juices of conservative politics observed an end of freedom and the spread of leftist or fake leftist ideology that oppresses the citizen under Clinton and Obama. Both interpretive communities refer to the same social and political trends, to the war on freedom that renders us up as sacrificial lambs to the cruel gods of global capital. He says the rhetoric employed by the two groups is so radically different, however, and the histories of the United States that they embrace are so divergent that they're lost in intense ideological conflicts, even as they describe the same creeping totalitarianism. Now, that conflict is no accident. The ideological battle over the insignificant is just what the doctor ordered for the interests of high finance, or as J.P. Morgan put it, by dividing the people, we can get them to expend their energies in fighting over questions of no importance to us except as teachers of the common herd. That's the first time I'd heard that quote. And somehow... It still doesn't surprise me, especially coming from J.P. Morgan. According to this article, the super-rich already had their consultants come up with detailed studies on how to divide up citizens by religion, by ethnic identity, by cultural signifiers, and by class, so that they are incapable of unity even in the face of the complete takeover of the economy, the media, education, and the political process. Progressives refer to the supporters of Trump in rural areas as stupid, and fundamentalist Christians refer to the followers of the Democratic Party as evil. And this profound misunderstanding is probably reinforced by numerous classified operations in which individuals promoting divisive left-wing or right-wing positions are encouraged and paid to do so, as render those who should have common cause as foes. So there's another reason why we have such a difficult time understanding the transformation of our society. The nature of this totalitarianism runs against the assumptions we were taught by movies, by novels, and news reports. Our minds are cluttered with archetypes for dictatorship and evil that are at odds with the reality. The greatest crime of Hollywood was convincing us that evil takes the form of a monster with fangs and claws of an evil leader with a sinister smile. Corrupt journalists extend this fiction to the public sphere, explaining how evil is embodied in foreign leaders like Kim Jong-un or Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin or domestic ill-doers like Hillary Clinton for the right or Donald Trump for the left. But he's got a point here. They're, they're, They're pulled straight from central casting. As a result, we are unable to detect or understand the takeover of our society that's taken place. That is to say, we are confronted with, or confronted by, inverted totalitarianism. To borrow the phrase of philosopher Sheldon Wolin, a cultural and political state in which all aspects of our daily lives are controlled by multinational multinational corporations without our knowing, and in which we lose all freedom. As a result, our actions are profoundly limited. We're constantly beaten down by an iron fist covered in the soft glove of interest charges, student loans, and constant surveillance. He says the totalitarianism that we face is inverted in the sense that we expect some dictator standing on top and playing the bad guy, oppressing us out of personal greed or vanity or cruelty. 
But the true source of our misery is rather the manner in which multinational corporations use supercomputers to calculate profits and then extract as much money as possible from us by making it impossible for us to grow our own food, to heal our own illnesses, to teach ourselves, or to entertain ourselves. Instead, we must buy products online or in supermarkets in transactions from which multinational corporations and banks will invariably take a major cut. The only learning that's recognized and accredited is expensive and controlled by corporations. In other words, we're offered only false choices between Pepsi or Coke, between Taco Bell or Wendy's, between action films or romantic comedies, and between the Democratic and Republican parties. Ooh, that one, that one hit home. He says the process by which citizens lost their self-reliance, their self-sufficiency in food production and energy production, and the basic skills of sewing, knitting, and carpentry, growing dependent on products supplied by corporations, that started more than 100 years ago. We can trace the current crisis back to the campaigns of John D. Rockefeller to force citizens to be dependent on petroleum through the promotion of automobiles and trade, the slashing of budgets for public transportation and the massive funding for highways, the push for mechanization of farming and the popularization of plastics. He says Rockefeller also paid off experts so as to marginalize homeopathic medicine and traditional treatments and create dependency on overpriced hospitals that are tied to corporations, while rendering universities and research institutes dependent on the benevolence of the rich, thus making systematic critiques of the sources of wealth a taboo topic. Yeah. You're not going to bite the hand that funds you, are you? To be more specific, he says, the invisible, inverted totalitarianism that's taken control of our daily experiences can be traced back to the launch of Windows as an operating system clear back in 1985. Microsoft Word, under the rule of Bill Gates, an ardent student of John D. Rockefeller, set out to control the means by which citizens utilized their computers and later to control how they interacted with each other over the Internet. Sure, presidential elections were held every four years and the public was given a chance to express itself. Secret police didn't cart off those who criticized the government. In fact, criticism of government was encouraged as a way to distract from the impact of bank deregulation. Most citizens were hardly aware that having one corporation control the system software for all computers that they supposedly owned meant that they'd lost their freedom. Yet, he says, the shift was profound. Whereas the individual previously could decide for himself where to place uh, files in his office, how to organize documents and lay out his papers around his typewriter, the manner in which information is organized within Windows is extremely limited, determined in advance by unaccountable forces, and the format and layout cannot be modified by the user. The author says, needless to say, this is the first step down the road to tyranny, this fatal loss of basic autonomy. Yet it was carefully covered up in the rhetoric of convenience and efficiency, exciting innovation and technological advancement. So much so that very few recognized the loss. We're going to come back to this article by Emmanuel Pastrich. It's not supposed to make you afraid or angry, but it should leave you feeling slightly better informed, even if uncomfortable. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Again, I'm going to invite you, please check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. It's not that I want you to be impressed by my awesome website or the fact you can subscribe to the podcast or even become a regular patron or donor uh, to help support this program. It's not even that I want to brag on the logo that my daughter designed for me, although I think it is pretty much the coolest logo I've ever seen because it's simple, but it's clearly me. (laughs) Nope. I want you to go because I want you to check out some of the different articles and different uh, commentators that I can connect you with and follow those threads. Click on the links. Learn more. Be willing to do some of your homework and and dive a little bit deeper into these subjects. That doesn't mean you have to go after all of them, but the ones that interest you, it's worth whatever price has to be paid to better understand them. I'm sharing an article right now from Emmanuel Pastrich about uh, the war on freedom, how tyranny overran the United States. And I think he makes a pretty solid point that this tyranny was done so subtly that most don't even recognize it. We thought of it as, wow, this is exciting, it's convenient, it's sufficient, and, you know, this is innovative, and wow. And yet we find ourselves at the mercy of basically large multinational corporations that have an incredible amount of control over our day-to-day lives. Yet very few people recognize the loss of liberty that goes along with it. He says, myths about the convenience or the importance of convenience of connectivity and globalization were swallowed by the entire population. But critical topics like the scientific method or the control of the means of production and the decision-making process in government and in other institutions, they were forgotten. He says, the next step in this hidden tyranny over our daily lives came in the form of search engines like Google, social networks like Facebook, and other massive interconnected corporations that mediated the interactions of the individual with the community, often taking over critical functions that previously belonged to the community or to nonprofit institutions like schools or research centers. Under the guise of greater convenience for the individual, businessmen with unlimited funding from investment banks were able to buy up rivals, block out alternatives that offered search engines as cooperatives, and thereby created search engines that pose as transparent institutions but derive money through the sophisticated manipulation of human interactions using algorithms. Now, because Facebook and Google had resources that they could lose money for years, the manner in which they whittled away at the autonomy of the citizen was almost undetectable. Equally important was the strategy of using short-term stimulation of the brain by postings, instant messages, and gaudy news reports to remap the connections between synapses so as to render most incapable of complex three-dimensional thinking. That service, the creation of a dumbed-down, passive population, was the true product that Internet giants offer to their real clients. Now, here's what he means by this. Google controls what information we have access to, in what order we have access to it, and it lays out a hierarchy of significance in search results that has some basis in fact, but is primarily a political act for sale to the highest bidder. Results of Google searches are altered on a case-by-case basis in response to the needs of corporations to promote their views to extremely specific audiences. And though we're trained to think of Google as a public service, its falsehoods increasingly given authority by the parallel Wikipedia entries created by public relations firms are not subject to external review. 
Google users are never permitted to participate in the process of formulation of policy or in the review of content. That is to say, the United States calls itself a democracy, but the primary tool that citizens rely on for information is run as a dictatorship. Another popular cloak for the slip into tyranny is the framing of opinion as content in the news. Scientific fact ceased to be central in reporting from the 1990s. In its stead, opinion polls of groups selected by polling companies are held up as confirmation of what's true. But public opinion polls are just the propaganda equivalent of stock buybacks. The billionaires, having radically deregulated the economy and dumbed down the population, merely force-feed their opinions to the public through the media that they control and then claim that the policies they want are demanded by the public. Facebook gives the appearance that the citizen can express himself freely and can make friends with anyone. Yet, since Facebook Inc. controls whom a citizen can easily find through its network and who sees what, and does not permit users to use their own software or design their own page or own the networks they create on Facebook or to have any say in how Facebook is administered, well, that freedom is fiction. Legal concepts like the contract have been twisted beyond recognition in the totalitarian cyberspace that surrounds us. See, a contract's a negotiated agreement between two parties, but online, whether it's the the decision to accept cookies or to comply with the rules for a commercial application, the user has no right to make demands of the corporation. He or she is given the false choice of either agreeing with all the conditions offered or not having access to the service. So the contract, well, it's an empty ritual. We're accustomed to permitting Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, or Instagram to determine what becomes of information that we share. And we're unaware of the billions in profits those corporations make by selling off the information, the content, and the creative ideas that we supply without giving us any compensation. In a sense, he says, these social networks are a form of virtual slavery. Now, from here, he goes into an explanation of COVID totalitarianism, saying, because the thinking of citizens has been degraded for decades and citizens rely on corporate-sponsored sources for basic information. It became possible for the first time to create a virtual pandemic planned by the super-rich, promoted by the news sources that they own, authorized by experts at institutes and universities that they fund, and legitimated by government agencies and international institutions like the World Health Organization that have been radically privatized. Now, previously, a significant number of citizens were capable of assessing the accuracy of information on their own. Research institutes like Harvard University still had an ethical commitment to the scientific method and to academic integrity. All that is over now, says Emmanuel Pastrich. The facades of the National Institutes of Health and Harvard remain the same. Maybe they're even better maintained, but the intellectual innards have rotted away. Distinguished professors are easily assembled to give testimony to ridiculous theories about COVID-19. Now, he says the dangers of the COVID-19 vaccines are not the primary threat. The danger lies rather in the shift of decision-making processes for policy away from science and away from a transparent policy debate. COVID-19 serves a successful serves as a successful precedent for invisible forces at private equity funds to decide medical policy in secret and then feed it to us through authority figures. 
those invisible forces now feel that they are free to require of us without any accountability to science, that we have any substance that they offer injected into our bodies as a condition for the right to attend school, to find employment, or to receive medical treatment. Now, the process was made possible by the interaction of social media networks, search engines, commercial media, and other critical components of daily experience that determine opinions concerning reliable and authoritative voices. That process is run as an invisible dictatorship that controls a distracted, confused, and unfocused population drowning in connectivity. Emmanuel Pastrich says, Nothing will get better until citizens recognize the cause of this nightmare was not the legacy of the Bushes, the Clintons, the Obamas, or the Trumps, although they all played their role, but rather the end of the self-reliant and informed citizen with access to the writings of experts and with a deep commitment to the scientific method and ethical principles. That's a pretty fancy way of saying, you got to think for yourself. You've got to learn to think like an expert. I know that's a drum that I beat on a pretty regular basis. But hopefully this, this provides a little more food for thought as to why that might be important. Not just from a standpoint of, yes, I know what's going on, and yes, I can answer these questions correctly, or I can win a discussion or an argument with, with somebody else on current events. This isn't about uh, dominating, you know, the, the local chat room, you know, on, on social media with, with your intellectual prowess. This is more a function of being able to see and think clearly and recognize when someone or several someones are trying to manipulate you. And then you have the choice. Do I go along with it or do I say no? I know it sounds terribly conspiratorial, mysterious. Uh, Is there ever an end to it? Just remember that we're dealing with human nature. This is not uh, this is not something that, wow, humans just barely evolved into this. This has been part of human nature as long as there have been human beings. Some people want control. They lust for control. You want to be a free individual? You better learn how to recognize that so that you can withhold your consent where necessary. This is The Brian Hyde Show.